This is the Golf Under Par Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy McCullough. We are on a journey to find the information that's going to help you play the best golf of your life. Join us now as we dive in. Welcome, everybody, to the Golf Under Par Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeremy McCullough here with a special guest, Luce Egner. Uh, he's an analytics guru in corporate America, but he also, you probably, from a golf world, know him as Golf Stat Guru there on Twitter. All right. And he's also a contributor to the decade system with Scott Fawcett. So he helps put a lot of that information that you guys can get from there. Lou, thank you so much for uh, being on here and welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for having me out. I appreciate it. Yeah. So I always start off asking all my guests, uh, what got you into golf? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So I have a very different introduction to the game than most. Um, I started off when I was maybe 11 or 12. Uh, I grew up playing hockey. It was sort of my primary sport. And uh, I started off playing golf left-handed and um, really wasn't too into it. Um, something I did in the summertime occasionally with my buddies and uh, never tracked index, but you know, I was would occasionally creep into the 80s and, and um, would generally be in the mid 90s. Uh, so not avid, but enough to get it around okay. And then uh, I tore my ACL when I was younger and uh, ACL surgeries were a lot different back then. They were, they were a long recovery. And when I came back from my recovery, it was tough to, it was on my right knee. So it was a little bit tougher to finish on the right side as a left-handed player. And, you know, my days of playing hockey were, were you know, pretty much winding down and the surgery, they were coming to an end. Uh, so I wanted to get into golf a little bit more. Still had that competitive outlet. It was tough to swing left-handed still. So I made the switch over to, uh, to right-handed. Um, and it, it took a couple of years to, to get there. And, and when I first started, um, I switched through seven iron, eight iron-ish. Uh, and then my wedges and, and my putter, I uh, would still do left-handed because I just very armsy swing, shorter shots. I would still swing those left-handed. So I'd go out and play with people. And part of my bag was left and part of my bag was right. And it was, uh, it was definitely an oddity. And then as I continued to get better as a right-handed player, I switched everything over to right uh, except for putting. And, uh, and so I really started to get into the game when I was about 19 or 20 years old um, and you know went from learning, relearning the game as a right-handed player. And I got to, was able to get down to scratch and played down near scratch for a number of years. And, and then, you know, family and kid didn't play as much. So index has crept back up, but kind of uh, finding more time these days and, and you know, able to get the index back down a little bit closer to where it used to be. All right. Very cool. Um, do you still have left-handed clubs that you practice with every occasionally or? You know, I still have a few left-handed clubs and I have a, you know, hitting net in the garage and, you know, every once in a while um, I'll take a left-handed club out and I'll, I'll swing a left-handed club into the net. Um, I don't do that as much anymore because um, the way that my setup is, is uh, in the garage, uh, you know, I park to my back. So as a right-handed player, one of the cars is behind me. And so there, there's no danger of the car being hit. But when I switch around as a lefty, I hosled one <laughs> one time and I don't have as much, uh, you know, side curtains on the left-hand side of my hitting area. And I, and I hosled it and it um, it caught sort of the curtain that's over there, but it, it, it hit into the car 
didn't uh, didn't cause any damage, thankfully, because it's uh, it's my wife's car. <laughs> um, so I, I I try not to swing too much lefty out there anymore after I knocked one off the car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, understandable. All right, so as a as a golf stat guru, I wanted to get on get you on here to kind of just help manage expectations for for the majority of golfers out there. We see you on the PGA Tour, we see all the great shots they show on TV, and so unless you're at the event, you don't get to see a lot of the bad shots. Um, and so I think we get these expectations of, oh, I should be able to do this every single time. Um, so I want to just kind of go through some statistics that you find uh, that you share oftentimes on, on your Twitter account. Um, let's start off with maybe some misconceptions you find with amateur golfers in regards of, you know, with golf statistics. Sure. Um, I, I mean, I think I'd like to maybe tackle that from, from two angles. Um, and we can, we'll get into the proximity numbers and, and you addressed it, I think, very well um, around what we see on TV. So before we go to what we see on TV and how that impacts our expectations, I just want to start off with stats in general for golfers, amateur golfers, guys like us, um, and some of the misconceptions there. And one of the biggest misconceptions that I see is a lot of the players that I talk to or interact with, they they believe that they don't need to track stats at all. And, and I think that's, um, uh, that's, it's certainly a detriment to many players. Um, I think it's important to measure your performance in each of the categories and have a system to do that. Um, there are plenty of apps out there to do that and track your stats. I think it's important to do that. Uh, and so the first misconception I would tackle is well, I'm just an amateur player. It's not important for me to track my stats. If you're out there and just playing casual golf and you don't care about score, then that's fine. You, you don't need to track your stats. But if you're trying to improve, maybe you want to play competitively. And competitively just may mean, you know, I want to do well in my flight in whatever tournaments I play in. It's important you, you track your stats and you have a mechanism to do that because that is going to allow you to see what areas of the game you need to work on and that's going to help you improve faster it's going to quantify the things that you're weakest at and it's going to allow you to develop a game plan around improving those things so that's the first thing i would say around stats i'm, I'm going to pause there to see if you have any questions on, on that part of it so i guess what are those stats that you would recommend for the you know typical day-to-day -day golfer well, I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. And I think it, um, I think it depends on the golfer. And, and I know that's um, kind of a, not an answer to your question, but it depends on the golfer. It depends on um, what they're trying to get to. So the most detailed level is getting down to a shot level. You're tracking on a shot by shot basis and you're trying to get strokes gained information on your game. And it's, important that if you're doing that, that you're using one of the apps out there that will allow you to benchmark yourself against people and your relative skill level. Um, sometimes it's challenging for a 15 handicap player to, to benchmark themselves against a tour pro. That um, it doesn't, uh, while you can certainly learn from that and you can, you can see where you're, you're weakest, um, it, it's more helpful to, to benchmark yourself against players in, in the same handicap range as you. And, and so if you're looking to really play competitive, I would recommend getting down to the shot level. Um, if you're not looking to be as competitive, there's a couple of things I would, I would suggest you start tracking. Um, fairways hit is not that important. 
on your tee shots, I would want you to simply track how many tee shots am I hitting good. And good just means I hit it relatively solid and I kept it in play. Avoiding penalty strokes is huge as amateur golfers. So keeping your shots in play um, is uh, the first thing that I would start tracking off the tee. Um, greens and regulation, there's a very strong relationship between how many greens you hit and what your handicap is. So I would, I would start with just those two. But there's plenty of apps out there um, that you can look into. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm part of the Decade system with Scott Fawcett. And there's two different versions of Decade. Uh, and, and one of them is for players that want to track at the shot level and they can get as detailed as they want. Another is the foundations program, which allows players to still track stats, but they're tracking uh, just a handful of stats, five stats for each round, and, and gives them some, some uh, you know, good benchmarks to quantify their performance and, and opportunities for them to improve. The final thing I would say that's important to track for all players, regardless of what they're doing, is what Decade calls the mental scorecard. And what that basically means is every single shot, you really need to go through your routine, you need to prepare for that shot, you need to pick a target, intelligently pick a target, right? So using a system like Decade to intelligently pick a mathematically correct target, focusing on that target and putting in your best effort to stay committed to that target and hitting the best possible shot you can, that doesn't mean the ball is going to go where you want it to go, it just means you've committed to that swing. Um, and then after you're done, you either grade yourself saying, yep, I, I committed, I went through my routine. And going through your, you, uh, your routine doesn't mean you spend you know, three minutes lining up a putt. Uh, going through, through your routine just means you get yourself prepared and, and ready to hit the golf shot. There's plenty of great info out there on how you can set up a routine that works for you. But going through and, and um, having that mental routine in place is critical tour players for 20 handicaps. Um, so those are the, the things I would, uh, I would say to, to start with. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So now let's get into the part two of answering the, what are some com mis com uh, common misconceptions? Sure. Uh, so uh, the misconceptions is, I think you hit the nail on the head when you, when you let into this and, and that is on TV on the weekend, um, we are generally, we, one, we're watching the best players on the planet. And then of the best players on the planet, we are watching the five to 10 players uh, that are playing the best that week. So we're seeing the best of the best play their best. And that gives us the idea that every shot they hit is, is perfect. And nothing could be further from the truth. Um, they are certainly phenomenal players. Uh, but to think that they hit every wedge shot inside of 10 feet is just simply not true. I have some numbers up here right now. I won't go through all of them, but you know, some people are, are surprised when they, when they look at this info and they hear this info. So from 100 yards in the fairway, a tour player, the average tour player, this is over uh, eight or nine years worth of data, hits 83.7% of the greens. Their average proximity on all shots is about 18 and a half feet. And their average prox proximity when they hit the green is about 15 and a half feet. That's certainly very different than um, if you polled uh, 100 amateur players and said, how close do tour players hit it from 100 yards? 
I think you would get numbers that are significantly less than this. Uh, and people are very surprised to see some of these numbers. And I won't go through all of them. Uh, it's out there on Twitter. You can see some of the charts. I believe this one I even have pinned right now to, uh, to my Twitter profile. So your listeners can uh, take a look at that and, and get a real good sense as to what the best in the world actually do, as opposed to the handful of shots you see on TV every weekend. Yeah. So from a hundred yards, I should, I should be pretty happy if I'm getting within uh, 20 feet. <laughs> it's, 100%. It's, yeah. If you, if you, if you have a hundred yard shot in the fairway and you hit it to 20 feet, you hit pretty much a tour quality shot. You know, the one thing I'll say though, and, and, and people bring this up and I've always talked about this, but the one caveat with all of these statistics with tour pros, um, we are measuring their performance against the location of the hole. Um, so when, when I say they hit the average 100-yard shot to 18 and a half feet, that's 18 and a half feet from the hole. They're not always aiming at the hole. The, the one thing that's missing in golf statistics is intention. Uh, I don't know if somebody was took dead aim at all and was trying to get it as close as possible, or their target was you know, two yards right of a hole. And the further you get back from the, from the hole, uh, the more that that's going to be an impact. Uh, so inside of 100 yards, they're generally, you know, their lines are pretty close to where the hole is. Uh, but when you get them out at 200 yards, 175 yards, it's, it's not uncommon for them to be picking lines that are 10, 15, 20 feet away from a hole. And so it might look like um, somebody hit it to, you know, 25 feet and, and it's a mediocre shot or it's an average shot, but they hit it exactly where the target was. And, and, and unless we know the, that intention, we, we don't, we can't really tell that. Uh, but still, these numbers give amateurs some very realistic, um, you know, it helps to give them more realistic expectations. If you're a five handicap, just don't think you're going to stand out in the fairway at 100 yards and pepper the flagstick all day. It's just simply not going to happen. Now, with that kind of some of that proximity information, where does the amateur go to kind of start applying some of that information? Um, so could you maybe ask that a different way? Yeah, so like, okay, so I know I should be happy with that 20 feet from 100 yards. Now, I guess you kind of, you kind of touched on this a little bit with, with the intention aspect there right. is, you know, then... I guess the, the question that would be is where, where do I take that information and, and apply it to my, to my level? So uh, I'm myself, I don't get out and play as much as I would like to. So I'm sitting about probably about 15 handicap right now. So, and that's, you know, average golfer. Right. Yeah. No, I'm good guys. So yeah, most of us are average golfers, right? That's just, it's kind of the, the definition. Uh, and, and so how does that, how can I use tour numbers to help me? Well, one, looking at the actual tour numbers, I think um, opens up a lot of eyes for people, uh, whether they're scratch players, 10 handicaps, 20 handicaps. It opens up their eyes and, and they can see that tour pros are not as good as they thought they were, which maybe eases some of that burden off of them. And then, you know, I, I don't want to make this sound like a huge plug for decade, uh, but the decade system essentially takes, uses math to help you pick mathematically correct targets. Uh, 
And the, the main idea in golf, especially from an approach shot perspective, is trying to minimize how much you short side yourself. Obviously, one, we want to avoid penalties. We want to avoid hitting it into the water. We want to avoid hitting it out of bounds. But we're trying to minimize how much we short side ourselves. And, and so that doesn't always mean just aim to the middle of the green. Um, aiming to the middle of the green at a place like Pebble Beach is a really good strategy. Aiming at the middle of the green at a place like St. Andrews with giant greens is probably not the best strategy. And so what Decade does is it uses the map and it helps us to apply um, intelligent shot patterns and it helps us pick targets that are uh, mathematically correct so that we are optimizing the number of times we hit the green, optimizing the number of birdie chances we might have, minimizing the number of times we short side it. Uh, and that, uh, that approach helps us find uh, appropriate targets that over the long term will give us the best expected score. That doesn't mean, you know, for a 15 handicap like yourself, I'm sure sometimes you step up to a ball and you hit a great shot and it comes out exactly like you wanted and, and you hit it close and you have a great birdie opportunity. But I'm sure there are times that you step up to a ball and you hit it off the planet as a 15 handicap. Uh, those are going to happen. So when you apply an approach like this, you can't take one shot as an example of, ah, oh, this doesn't work. You have to look at it over the long term and picking correct targets is going to pay off over the long term. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, so it really comes down to is just understanding that there are reasons to avoid certain things that like you mentioned. So being wise about your picking your target to avoid penalties and um, not putting yourself into a worse position to make a worse score, um, but getting, you know, the best opportunity to get a good score. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in, in golf, um, you know, op optimal golf strategy essentially comes down to advance the ball as far as you can. You want to try to get as close to the hole as you can um, while avoiding trouble, while taking into account trouble. And so you have to balance those out. And uh, uh, off the tee is, a, is, a, is where I always start when I begin working with new players. And uh, people generally uh, are not hitting driver enough. Um, they, they think they're going to gain accuracy by dropping back to a three wood or a five wood or a driving iron. And for most players, they don't pick up enough accuracy to offset the loss of distance. Um, now there's, there's certainly, uh, every player is different and you have to understand your shot patterns and your tendencies. But for the most part, you want to advance the ball as far as you can off the tee, taking into account penalties. And that generally means hitting driver as much as you possibly can. And especially for shorter hitters, um, you want to hit driver as much as you possibly can. So my whole high school uh, strategy was, was wrong. <laughs> I always hit yeah, a huge slice yeah. on my driver. And so I was like, oh, I just got to go my three-wood because I could hit pretty darn straight down. Um, and, but I would lose probably 30 or 40 yards. Yeah, as long as you can keep your driver in play right now, if you're, if you're slicing your driver off the planet and you're, you know, you're reloading a half a dozen times around, that, that's not a good strategy to shoot good scores. You know, that's, where you, that's where tracking your stats um, really helps. And then when you identify 
you know, I can't keep driving around the property, that's when you can uh, employ the help of a, a swing coach uh, to help you work through that and get better at your game, get better at your technique, get better at keeping the ball in play. Um, that's why it's one of the reasons it's important to uh, keep those stats. Uh, and so most people are going to hit their driver and their three wood really close to the same dispersion, the same shot pattern. So dropping down to a three wood for accuracy uh, is generally not a good idea. Dropping down to a three wood to take trouble out of play, perfectly acceptable. There's a pond that starts at 260 and your three, your, your driver goes, you know, 265, 270 on a well-struck tee shot, but your three wood rarely goes past 250 on a well-struck tee shot. Hitting the three wood to take the trouble out of play, that's, that's the approach. That's what you should do. Hitting driver um, or hitting, sorry, hitting three wood to uh, just pick up accuracy um, is generally not a good recipe to shoot low scores. So uh, let's focus on, you know, maybe one or two things that you feel like a golfer can, can kind of understand or learn that's going to help them with their score. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, that's a really, that's a, a big question, right? There's a, a lot of different ways to answer that. And, you know, there's a lot of talk around uh, speed on tour and, and hitting the ball long is an advantage. And that is 100% true. It's always been the case. Distance has always been an advantage. And there's not the best players on tour. And when I say the best players on tour, my, my gauge there, my barometer is uh, players that are winning the most money. So players that are winning, players that are doing well and, and putting the most money in the bank every year. When you look at top players on the money list, they are better at every category than the rest of the tour. So they are better off the tee, they're better approach players, they're better around the green, they're better on the greens as a group. And so they're just better. And one of the things that uh, the amateur players that I work with, I try to get them to, uh, to focus on is understanding each of those categories. So off the tee, approach shots, around the green and putting, understanding their actual performance in each of those categories so they know what they're weakest at and where they can improve the most, where, where there's, for their games, where there is more bang for the buck. Um, approach play is really important. On the tour level, approach play um, helps to identify players that have the best chance for long-term success or the best chance for success. Um, that is true at our level as well. Approach play is really important. But if you are somebody that is three putting nine or 10 times around, putting for you could be a huge opportunity to get better. If you're somebody that is hitting six or seven tee shots out of bounce every round, off the tee with a driver is something for you that could be really, really important. If you're somebody that is chunking your irons seven or eight swings every round, you know, approach play for you could be really important. That's why it's important to track this information, track these stats for your own game so that you can work with your coach to, uh, to get a better plan on how you can improve. There's no, you know, one size fits all and, and go work on, 
you know, 175 yard shots and, and you're magically going to become a scratch player. Um, you may be a, a pretty good iron player, but a horrific putter. Uh, and uh, understanding your own strengths and weaknesses is important so you can develop a ga game plan to improve on those and, and then become a better overall player. Sounds like the answer we get to a lot, of, a lot of things in life. It always depends upon the person, and that's why it's important to have an assessment or this tracking um, that you're talking sure. about, you know, and having yeah, somebody absolutely. that can kind of guide you in, in that direction, whether that's for your body, whether that's for your golf game or um, your, you know, course management stuff there. So. Yeah, absolutely. So I saw you recently were um, looking to con conduct some, some research. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what kind of research you're kind of conducting here? Uh, are you talking about uh, the, the golf ball? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, I was able to get my hands on some some old Bellatas, some Titleist Tour Bellata 100s. They've been sitting in someone's closet for you know the last 20 plus years. Brand new in the box, um, never used, um, and never really been outside. I've been in somebody's um, you know closet in their office for two plus decades, and uh, I was you know curious just to I wanted to try to um, compare older technology to modern technology, just to um, to get a better sense of what the difference is. I, I was really interested in curvature. Um, how much the old balls spun compared to the new balls and, and all things being equal, what that meant for uh, how much further offline a ballata would go, given the same spin axis and same ball speed and same everything else. Um, and I reached out to some of the folks at, at Titleist and ended up getting some uh, answers on the tour ballata and, and um, I actually posted those on Twitter, but uh, the, the you know, my paraphrased answer to what the technical folks at, uh, at Titleist said was these uh, torbladas, they were liquid filled in the center. And this liquid begins to evaporate over time. And the shelf life of the ballata was only intended to be about two years. And after that, the liquid starts to evaporate. And that liquid that was in the center, um, it you know, created um, you know, pressure, I guess. And I'm, I'm by no means an engineer, so I could be butchering the way I'm describing this and using the wrong words, but that liquid um, allowed the ball to have compression. Um, it allowed the ball to um, stay the size it was supposed to be. It also allowed the ball to uh, you know, be the weight it was supposed to be. As that liquid evaporates, and, and not all of the liquid evaporates, by the way, uh, there, only a small amount will evaporate over time, but when it does evaporate, the core begins to collapse. So the ball gets squishy and the ball gets lighter. A lighter golf ball is not going to fly as far. And, and so I had somebody who also had some old balladas um, and had been sitting around in their house for two plus decades. And they have some uh, you know, very expensive and precise equipment to measure balladas. And they measured the ballata and it was extremely light. It was, um, I, I forget what the exact number was, but it was uh, you know, off the charts light, which is going to make the ball fly shorter. Uh, it was also uh, very squishy. The compression was in like, the upper 30s or low 40s. Uh, and, and, and it's a tour ballata 100. It's supposed to have compression of 100. You know, back then a new ball would have had compression in the mid 90s from what the folks at Titleist told me. And so 
that the this the evaporation of the liquid inside makes the ball lighter and squishier, out of round, a little bit smaller. And the balls that I've had measured, exactly that's what is going on with them. So the only way, unfortunately, to do a fair test with old baladas versus new equipment is if we had new baladas that were manufactured to the same specs that they manufactured them back when that's all that everybody used. So unfortunately, I, I won't be able to, uh, you know, to do the level of testing I wanted to do. And, and I have five dozen baladas that are, you know, they're actually about three feet away from me at the moment, just sitting there. And, and uh, I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do with them yet, uh, but uh, I have them and I, I might go try a few out and, and, and see what, uh, see how they perform and, and probably document some of that. So that's kind of the story with the baladas. Well, that's, that's disappointing. It would have been interesting research, but I can understand two decades of sitting in a closet are probably going to affect any kind of equipment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it is. It is unfortunate. I wish they would make new ones. Um, it would be interesting. Um, I, I think there's probably a market for it. Um, I think there are people out there that would buy old baladas and play them. I mean, there's people out there that, that are buying uh, and using, you know, persimmon. Um, and there's a couple of companies out there that are still making persimmon drivers. There's that um, Louisville Golf, um, and they're still making and, and selling persimmon clubs, and people buy them and play them. And, and, and uh, I think it would be uh, it'd be neat if they had those available. I actually pitched an idea uh, not that long ago to a, a former uh, Torpro, and I suggested an off-season event that they play with old equipment. Right, so get a bunch of current tour pros and get uh, old equipment, persimmon drivers, irons from you know back in the 60s or 70s, tour baladas. Uh, if we could find new tour baladas that would perform well enough, nothing but old equipment, and go out and have a, a one or two day event for charity uh, with a bunch of the tour pros uh, and just see how they do. I think that would be I think that'd be interesting. Um, and if you follow me on Twitter, you know where I stand on the rollback debate. I'm, I'm not for a rollback. I also like variety, and I'd love to see something like that. And I would even go as far to say as I, I think it would be interesting if, the, if we, we had um, old equipment that would perform the way it was supposed to perform, and specifically the ball. So if we had newer baladas that were made that performed like they used to, I think it would be interesting if the tour took one event a year and made it where you had to use retro equipment, retro clubs, retro ball. And I look at that as no different than some of the other specialty events that they have on tour currently. So they, they have a match play, which is different than stroke play, which is what they normally do. Uh, and then they have the team event at Zurich, uh, which is also very different from, from what they normally do. So I would be fine with a retro event and, and see where that goes. I like variety and I, I think it'd be fun to watch and interesting to watch. And who knows, maybe seeing that, maybe it would change my mind. Uh, maybe I would look at that and, and like it better. I don't think so, uh, but I'm, I'm not closed to, to seeing something like that happen. Yeah, no, I think, I think, you know, playing around with events like that would be would be a lot of fun. You know, and I, I'd love the idea of you know having maybe even co-ed 
events or whatever like that, these kind of things. Because, you know, with with the world of golf and how everything is changing in the world just in general, you know, entertainment factor has got to be, you know, one of the number one priorities in order to keep those sponsors and all these things that they, they rely on. And so sure. more people, more interesting, you can make it for people. And I think that provides an intrigue for at least uh, a handful of people to, to be interested in, or at least it's something different. I mean, look at the number of people that watch the match and, um, you know, the, sure. yeah. and, and the, these other events that they've done the last two years and some of these are charity events this year. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, I, it would be, I, I don't know that it'll ever happen. I mean, the tour has a, a pretty strong product um, and they have a, a, a product that a lot of people are interested in. And, and so I don't know how much they, they'd rock the boat, but um, I would be in favor of seeing things like that. So yeah, um, hopefully, uh, hopefully that can happen. Awesome. Well, we're going wrap up here. I got a few just a quick questions to ask you before we, uh, we get off here. Um, so first off, sure. what's your first, or what's your favorite golf memory? Um, I, boy, I've, I've had two hole in ones, uh, and they were six days apart. Um, so my favorite golf memory was probably my second hole in one. Um, it, first hole in one happened and, um, while ago, coming up on 17, 18 years ago. And I showed up at the, the place that I played at at the time and I was preparing for a club championship, which was right around the corner. And I showed up in the evening to, to play and um, I was uh, just really gonna practice. I did not intend on going out on the golf course. I was just started working my game to get ready for the club championship. And a buddy of mine just happened to show up at the same time and he said, come on, let's, let's go out and play. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm here to practice. He's like, no, come on, let's go. And there were people coming off number nine at the club that I was at. And um, so we went over to number 10. There were people on one, people coming off nine. We hurried over to number 10. And number 10's short hole was playing 137. Um, I, I took an eight iron out. I literally took like like one tiny little swing. And I, and I hit just a little three-quarter shot without hitting a golf ball. Um, and taking one practice swing and it, and it was just a tight little draw and it, it landed a couple feet away and just spun and dropped in. And um, back then, I don't know how true it is, but back then um, you had to play 18 holes is, is kind of what the mantra was in order for your hole in one to be official. And it was late and, and darkness was, was creeping on us. And, and um, so we ran over and we got a golf cart and we just played in like an hour and 35 minutes. We just screamed through so I could finish by dark. Um, so that was a, a long-winded answer, but that was definitely my, my favorite personal moment um, in, in my golf career. That's pretty awesome. Um, all right, so what's your favorite exercise or drill to kind of improve your personal game? Um, you know, I started – um, earlier this year, uh, doing, um, some, well, one, I've done a, a ton of speed training. All right. So I'm going to answer that in a couple of different ways. I've done a lot of speed training. Uh, I've done super speed, uh, and I've also used Clay Ballard's top speed golf system. And I saw great results with both of them at this time last year, I was swinging the club about 99 with my driver. Uh, back when I played a lot and I was scratch, I swung it around 108 or so. And then I got older, didn't play as much. Swing speed dropped off to, you know, upper 90s, maybe 100 if I went after it a little bit. And I wanted to commit to get longer. Uh, I 
you know, working in golf stats, you see the importance of distance. So I wanted to commit and get longer. So I uh, started working out. I got a TPI certified trainer, helped give me a program. And then I did super speed and I did top speed. And um, I went from 99 to low teens now. My playing speed now is up about 114. So I saw a huge increase from where I was last year and uh, you know, a five to six mile an hour increase from where I was at my peak about 10 years ago. Uh, and, and so that is the thing that I really enjoy the most. So the thing that you, you asked is, you know, what's my favorite? My favorite drill, my favorite thing in golf was doing these speed, speed drills to get faster. Hitting the ball further is a lot more fun. Um, and adding 14, 15 miles an hour swing speed has been a lot of fun. So I'm hitting the ball in places that I've never hit before. I'm faster now than you know, when I was down near scratch. So it's been great to pick up that extra speed. Uh, and then for me, uh, beyond that, um, there's a drill that I've, I've been doing on ground contact with my irons. It's something that I've always struggled with. And I do some, some practice around ground contact with my irons where I try to move my ground contact around. And sometimes I intentionally try to contact the ground two or three inches ahead of the ball, two or three inches behind the ball, inside the ball, outside the ball. So just playing around with ground contact and trying to get a little bit better there has, has really worked well for me. So two answers, long-winded, but hopefully that makes sense. Good. Um, what's one takeaway you would like the listeners to apply to today? Um, well, one, you know, have fun. Manage your expectations. Um, don't beat yourself up if you don't hit a wedge shot to 10 feet because the best in the world don't do that too often. So don't beat yourself up, have fun. Um, and if you're serious about the game and you want to uh, get better, you're playing for score, you want to be competitive, uh, then start, you know, come up with, uh, uh, get a program in place to track your stats so you can understand truly where your weaknesses are. And then you can get an effective game plan to get better at those weaknesses. Um, and so that's, you know, the, the, the biggest takeaway I would have. I know there's some, some discussion online about tracking your stats during your round or after your round. I really don't care. Um, I have the mindset that tracking during the round doesn't impact me. It's no different to me than writing down my score when I'm done with the hole. So I have a, a mechanism in place that I track everything that happens during the hole. But some people don't work that way, and that's okay. They, they want to do that after the round. They can't do it during the round. And I am totally fine with that. Um, if you can't remember all the details, then you know, that obviously presents a problem. Uh, but most people can for the most part after the round. And, and if it's easier for you to track after the round, by all means, go ahead and do that. Just make sure you're keeping stats and make sure you're using those to identify areas of your game that you can improve on. How about you give me a name of somebody I should get on the podcast? Well, I give you a name of somebody you should have on the podcast. There's, I don't want to, I don't want to forget anybody, and, and uh, so I hesitate to. Uh, I don't want to make anybody mad at me. Uh, you know, talking to my partner Scott Fawcett would be great. I mean, Scott has uh, a tremendous amount of. Um, he's got a background in the game. Played professionally. He came up with the decade system. Um, so he took all of the work that Mark Brody did, all of the strokes game math, and he applied that to course strategy and did so in a way that, you know, that the math supports making the best decision you can, you can make to shoot the lowest scores you can possibly shoot. 
And so he really kind of blazed the trail on this new way of approaching the game. Now, has this always existed in golf? Has, you know, playing to the fat side of the green always existed in the game? Yes, it, it, it has. It 100% has. But quantifying it to the level of, um, you know, the pin is, is four yards on and, and you're 150 yards out, you don't want to aim closer than, you know, this many yards uh, to the edge of the green. Uh, and then you want to adjust or modify that depending on uh, what trouble may or may not be there. Um, it took aim to the fat side of the green and it put in place, you know, actual specific places that you should aim. Uh, and, and so uh, Scott's a great guy to talk to. And, and so I'll, I'll say, give Scott a call and, and try to get him on. Yeah, reach out to him. We've we got to work out some on the schedule. He's a busy man. So he, Yes, he is. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on the, on the podcast today, uh, Lou. Before we wrap up, let us know how can we learn more about you and and support what you're doing. Sure. Uh, well, first, uh, thanks for having me on. It was great talking with you. And you can find me on Twitter at uh, Lou Stagner on Twitter. Uh, and then uh, Decade, you can find more uh, about Decade at PlayingLesson.com. All right. Well, that's it for this episode of the Golf Under Par podcast. We'll have Lou's information in the show notes. And thank you so much for all of you guys listening. And thank you, Lou, for coming on. Thanks, Jeremy. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Hopefully you've enjoyed this content on the go. If you found it helpful, please share with a friend and leave us a review on iTunes. This allows us to reach more golfers just like you that want to play under par. Do you want to be stronger and healthier? Well, I've got a resource, Golf Fitness Tips. It's a free Facebook group where we talk about how to take care of our bodies so that we can play more golf, we can play golf longer in life, and we can play better on the course. If that interests you, then check out the link below or search for Golf Fitness Tips on Facebook.